Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. This is the final summer Monday with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my colleague, Will Salatin. Uh, right away, I want to thank everyone for hanging with me last week for the pilot of Need to Know Podcast. That was a really fun experiment. I'll keep you posted, and if there is more to come. But right now, we have to get straight to Will, who is fresh back from a vacation. So, Will, just tell us, what'd you do? I floated in the water. So it's it's one of those, you know, look, you have kids, you take them to the beach. When the kids are little, you're just running around all the time with the kids trying to make sure they don't get swallowed up by the ocean or trying to like run after whatever their issue is. And now our kids are older. And so you can just like go and relax. So that's what you have to look forward to. Amanda, I am still feeling that weird feeling, you know, when you've been in water and the waves and you get back on dry land and you just feel like you're bobbing. You feel like you don't have your balance because your body is still in that water mentally. Okay. Well, welcome back to shore. Um, there's been a lot going on. I'm sure we have to catch up. I want to get all your thoughts on everything that did happen last week. Uh, but there's a one story I saw that didn't get a lot of coverage, or maybe it's more of an analysis piece uh, to kick us off today. And the headline was, we got rolled. How the conservative grassroots lost the fight with Biden because it was focused on Trump. And I thought this is really interesting because essentially what they did is they interviewed a few conservative activist types and said, you know, what's the deal? Biden's racking up all these wins. He just, you know, can't stop winning. He's got the infrastructure bill. He had the gun reform. He passed chips. He got a judge confirmed to SCOTUS. Uh, And then he had the passage of the (laughs) hilariously named Inflation Reduction Act. And what they did is they said, you know what, because our grassroots folks have been so focused on Trump and the raid on Mar-a-Lago. We just haven't been able to have any real kind of policy opposition. And I thought that was really interesting and probably a very beneficial development for Biden. It's not clear to me what ultimately caused this. I mean, are they saying that uh, they couldn't focus on policy because of circumstances of the moment? Because I wouldn't agree with that. I would say the reason why Republicans can't focus on policy is they don't stand for policy anymore. I mean, this is a party that used to have sort of a platform and an agenda, and they would have ideas about what to do about this or that issue. And now they pretty much run around trying to create fake uh, cultural issues like Dr. Seuss or something that will get their base pissed off. But Amanda, I don't think they have any serious answers to something like inflation. I mean, all they can do is talk about, you know, we shouldn't spend money, but a program for what the government should do in order to make people's lives better, kitchen table issues, I don't really hear that from Republicans anymore. So it's not surprising to me that they that they don't have an answer here. Well, it seems like, you know, in the past when we've had these big policy bills with trillion dollar price tags, at least in, you know, the previous Obama-Bush era, as you take uh, Obamacare or TARP, things like that, that really mobilize conservative activists, you could have an ideological fight, right, over the size, scope, role in government, what it should and should not be doing. And we didn't have any of this when it came to the climate legislation that was all rolled up in there. I mean, there were, there were fights that could be had, but they took a pass on it. The only one I really saw get some degree of traction had to do with the expansion of the IRS agents for enforcement, which, you know, I am in favor of because we've had all these rich, powerful, wealthy people get off with all kinds of IRS fraud. 
and they never get punished. Meanwhile, these IRS guys only go after the little guys because they're the easiest to prosecute because they don't have the resources to go after the rich and powerful people who are skipping out on uh, million-dollar payments. But that's where they tried to have a fight. And it just kind of seemed like a blip. Yeah. So the IRS thing, I think, could be uh, an issue in the future, depending on how it's enforced, as you're pointing out. And and we'll see what happens with that. But the thing that I'm wondering about as I... Well, hold on. Why do you think it'll be an issue? I'm curious. Well, you know, if it is true, and I've heard people, you know, not just right-wingers say that historically, this is the point you're sort of making, that that it's easier to get the smaller people than to get mm-hmm. the bigger people because the bigger people have the lawyers and all that stuff and the accountants and they're better protected. If the IRS actually goes after ordinary people more than they'd go after the rich, that will absolutely become an issue and that will hurt the Democratic Party. I just don't know whether in fact that's the way it's going to play out. I mean, it's possible that the IRS will say, that may be true historically, we're not going to do that this time, even though the rich people have the lawyers and the accountants, we're going to go after them, that's where the money is, that's where the fraud is. If they do that, it'll be fine. Yeah. Can I say one thing about why this bill didn't trigger the reaction Mm -hmm. on the right that some people thought, or not in the middle, a backlash in the middle? Should we be thanking Joe Manchin? Should we be saying that Joe Manchin, representing the middle of America, actually vetted Biden's legislation and he weeded out the stuff that would have triggered a backlash? He left it with a smaller package, popular things like prescription drugs, insulin. Well, I guess insulin got pushed out, but popular things in the bill. Plus, he made sure it was a net positive financially for the government, that more money came in in tax revenue than went out. So it's not like spending, not adding to the deficit. And maybe... By vetting it, Joe Manchin prevented the backlash that isn't happening now. Well, I'll tell you where there is a policy fight happening. I mean, Biden did get these big wins, but where conservatives do want to have a fight is on the student loan forgiveness plan. I am sure even though you were on vacation, you saw that Biden went ahead and said that they would, uh, he would have an executive order saying that borrowers that making under $125,000 a year can get $10,000 in debt relief. And if they got a Pell Grant, they'd be eligible for up to $20,000 in debt cancellation. What, what's your reaction to that? All right. So I, I can't be the liberal here because I, I have the same moral intuitions that a lot of a lot of Republicans have about this, which is I don't like debt forgiveness when it is focused on a favored constituency. You know, and I know other bulwarkers have commented on this. I'll just say my piece. I am very concerned that the Democratic Party is becoming the college party. And, you know, the party of college educated voters, and that's fine in terms of like, you know, if everybody can be educated and all that, but a lot of it is college educated people who have debts specifically from college, not, it's not auto loans, it's not home loans, it's college loans, getting a, getting forgiveness specifically for those while other people's loans who didn't go to college are not forgiven, that can become a political liability. And even if it isn't a liability, Amanda, it really bothers me that if Democrats become the college party and become blind to the inequities between college-educated and non-college-educated people, and because we all went to college, we think that we're being enlightened when, in fact, we're looking out for our self-interest. That would be a major moral problem as well as a political problem. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I, I think you are right that a lot of us here at the Bulwark are sort of opposed to this problem have concerns with the moral hazard of it. But let's talk about the politics and the legality of it, because what you raise here about the Democrats becoming the party of the college educated is a very good one. And when I look at how Biden was able to do this, you know, he he doesn't 
the Republicans weren't able to mount real opposition in the run-up to this because it was an executive order. He just did it. But why is it that Biden feels so free to essentially give this, I'm, I'm going to call it a handout, a handout to such a narrow slice of the American electorate, right? It's going to cost, the White House says it's $24 billion a year, $240 billion. Over 10 years, other economists say it's going to go up to $500 billion. Nobody really knows what this is going to cost. But that's an enormous amount of money going to, you know, a relatively small group of people. So do you think he feels as though he needs to do it to appease this very important constituency? Or what's really going on here? Yeah, I think I think that it is a democratic constituency. I mean, we, and it, both of us know that this this wasn't the way the parties were originally aligned, right? Republicans were more of a suburban party. Um, there, one reason why they raised a lot of money is they had more college educated, wealthier people. Now they have like the rich, but the college educated people have moved over to the Democratic Party, and so it's become a democratic constituency. Look, let's just be honest: the election is coming up. Democrats want to get their people to the polls. Their people are college educated. They're they're giving a special break to the college educated. And I'm not saying that it's not needed. A lot of people need to restart their lives. They have they're saddled with student debt, but there's lots of other kinds of debt. And the Democratic Party is not focusing on those other kinds of debt first because that's not their constituency. Yeah, I guess I'd like to know more about the why, because I agree with you it's a constituency, but I am also wondering if he's thinking more tactically than that. Because if you can hook essentially a college-educated voter in a midterm, they become sticky. Those are people who are likely to keep voting again and again, may participate in primaries. And if you can get them to the polls because of something like this while they're younger, that may pay dividends later. I'm just, I'm very interested in why the decision was made to I'm going to say pander. I mean, I don't really mean pander, but pander to this narrow constituency because I think it will be politically beneficial to them in a way I I don't think people are really anticipating. But I do want to talk about the legality of it because I'm not saying this is going to happen, but what would happen, Will, if Biden goes through, says, you know, he's throwing out the money out of the parade car and it gets stopped in the courts? What if it's ruled to be unconstitutional? Because there is lots of tape of even even Biden himself saying, quote, I don't think I have the authority to do this by signing with a pen. Amanda, I think your question is a great question, and I think it answers itself. All right, so I'm not normally conspiratorial. This isn't really a conspiracy theory. I think Biden expects to lose. I think he he does. We, oh. we, we've all seen the reporting that he doesn't actually want to do this. Oh, right? Hold on, you, you say the midterms? or No, 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 not the midterms, the, the lawsuits. Oh, okay. I think, okay. I think he expects to lose legal. I think he expects that this won't mm-hmm. happen. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be bad. Uh, why would it be bad? I mean, he would have tried. If people would support him. The, the lawsuit would not, I don't know how long it would take I to think settle. It would be terrible because you have all these young people thinking they're going to get $10,000 or $20,000 aced out of, their, out of their debt. You don't think that would be a huge disappointment? I, I, I think most people who would benefit from this assume it's a done deal. I don't know if they expect that, but I don't think they're going to blame Joe Biden if Joe Biden says, let's do this, and the courts say, no, you can't. I think they'll credit him. I mean, one of the, I'm sorry to be cynical about this, but very often in politics, the most effective thing you can do 
is to be seen fighting for something and then not to have to pay the actual cost of fighting for it, which Amanda, as you're pointing out, is it's very expensive and it would create a lot of problems for, uh, for some other people. And, you know, I think the best scenario for Biden is he does this. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was told this, you can do this, get out in front of it, make it an issue, get your people to the polls. If you lose later, just gosh, that's too bad. But it, that cost politically won't accrue to him. And I, I'm, I'm going to respectfully but strongly disagree with you on this point, because if people are expecting to get something and then it's ripped away, I think they will absolutely, yeah, sure, they can blame the courts, but they will absolutely blame Biden because I, I don't think there's any expectation that this may not come through. But I do want to listen to this little bit of sound from Cedric Richmond, who's on Fox News talking to Jennifer Griffin. And he is asked to respond to a clip from Nancy Pelosi, who said that this program wasn't really doable. People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. What changed? Well, Congress acted. And if you look at the legislation that allowed President Trump and President Biden to delay loan repayment, it's the same legislation that allows him to forgive $10,000 worth of debt and $20,000 worth of debt to those who were on Pell Grants, which is the hardest and lowest income people that are going to college. So it's the same thing. Uh, and look, I, I call it how I see it. It's the same thing that allowed President Trump to do it that allows President Biden to do it. Legal experts expect court challenges. You know conservative lawyers are already looking for the right person or group withstanding to sue. Will this even hold up in court? Yes, it'll hold up in court, just like the 2020 election, which the president won by over 7 million votes. Yeah. So Trump did it. So can we. We won. Deal with it. Is that persuasive or would even be remotely persuasive in court? I'm answering my own question. <laughs> I don't know about court. I don't think so. But Amanda, I think, judging from the sound of your voice there, we're both horrified by the same thing. Trump <laughs> did it, therefore so can we. I mean, come on, Democrats. The, let's not be the mirror image of the Trump party. I mean, Oh my goodness. And that part at the end for when, when Richmond says it's just like the 2020 election. No, it's not, Cedric. It's the opposite. The 2020 election was a legitimate election, which Donald Trump, who behaved like an autocrat, tried to overturn. The autocracy that he did in trying to overturn the election is very similar to the, the autocratic way he conducted himself as president, which was behavior like this. The president just saying, you know what? I don't need Congress. Remember that fight in 2019 when he took money for the wall and the Congress said, no, you can't do it. Nancy Pelosi said, no, you can't do it. And Trump declares an emergency and just seizes the power of the purse from Congress. You know, that is autocratic behavior. And for Joe Biden to come along and say, I'm going to handle student loans the same way. I'm just going to do it, even if Congress won't go along with me. And for Democrats to, to defend it, saying it's the same thing Trump would have done or Trump did, that is revolting. And that is learning all the wrong lessons from the Trump era. Well, well, there is another way that the White House was pushing back against student loan forgiveness opposition, and they were doing it with their Twitter account, essentially going through and highlighting Republican members of Congress who opposed the forgiveness program, who had also received PPP loans. Did you see some of those tweets? 
I really did. That's like the one thing that I saw from the beach, and I loved it. You did? Why? Tell me why. So I think Democrats have learned from John Fetterman, uh, not even from John Fetterman, the Democratic Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, who literally had a stroke, can't go out and speak for any length of time right now, um, while he's recovering at least. And his social media, he doesn't have to because his social media team is so good. They are out there just slamming his opponent, Mehmet Oz, and they're funny, they're they're quick, they're they're terrific. And you know, clearly the White House social media team is sort of snapped into action and is doing something like that. And so Biden himself doesn't have to be a great speaker, although I think he just gave a great speech on Thursday, but he doesn't have to go out, go out and do the speaking if his Twitter account can sort of mobilize. And you were talking, Amanda, about young people. I think this is a better way to get young people out is to be on social media and it doesn't have to be Biden. It can be his team. Yeah. Here, here's why I didn't like it, because I don't like the PPP program. This program, I you know, at some point, if I keep doing the need to know thing, I'm going to do a deep dive on all the fraud in PPP because, I mean, the fact that they were just shoveling out trillions of dollars, you know, this happened under Trump with little to no oversight. There was so much fraud, rampant fraud, obvious fraud that happened with this program for the Biden White House to be saying, oh, well, this is just like student loans. No, I, I don't think it's like student loans at all. Student loans are something that you have to take on to better yourself. The PPP program was just designed to shove money out the door. And of course, there were businesses that needed it. But tell me why. I want to know, why did any of these members of Congress need any of this money? There was one guy, Mark Wayne Mullins, who I think is on pace to replace Jim Inhofe. He's probably going to be a U.S. senator. He got something like $1.4 million. Excuse me, what is this? What is this member of Congress doing as a side business? Like, tell me more about that. But don't use it to sort of explain why the student loan forgiveness program is good and beneficial. I think you're exactly right, Amanda. I can't disagree with you about the distinction between these two. I think the better comparison to PPP is not student loans. It's the Wall Street bailouts, which almost everybody thought were disgusting. But, but why would you want to compare it to anything that was bad if you're trying to say why this is good and defensible? I guess that's kind of my point. They don't have to argue that PPP was worse. They just have to argue that these politicians are hypocrites. I'm just saying from mm -hmm. the standpoint of the White House saying, because they're agreeing with you. They're making your point, right? The student loan forgiveness is, there's a better moral case for it than there was for PPP. But the PPP is very much like the Wall Street bailouts. And to me, the Republican Party doesn't represent fiscal responsibility, doesn't really represent restraint. The absence of a, of a backlash right now to the, you know, the, the PPP forgiveness is an illustration of that, that sort of water under the bridge. But Amanda, I will also say there is a defense of the program of, of the PPP, which is, yeah, there was going to be fraud and the people who administered it knew there this was going to be- This is why we need those IRS agents. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, I mean, actually, the thing about it is, Amanda, we can't move fast enough to monitor this money given how fast we needed to get it out there. Oh. It is, all right, okay. I, can I just say, Amanda- <laughs> I'm applauding you from the liberal bleachers. You are what the Republican Party should be. You're defending the principle of, you know, not taking money that isn't yours and paying back what you borrow and all that. But that's not where the Republican Party is. They're, they're not standing for that principle anymore. If money went out the door to these congressmen, they're just going to be quiet about it. They took the money and they ran like everybody else. So I'm, I'm sorry that the party isn't where you are. And we would have a healthier conversation if we were listening to Amanda Carpenter instead of Kevin McCarthy. Well, thank you. But 
So obviously you do like the way Biden is pushing back on this. You may have also liked the way that Biden is stepping up his rhetoric against Republicans or should I say MAGA Republicans in his speeches recently. He was at a uh, fundraiser in Bethesda where he's talking about how MAGA Republicans are semi-fascist. And, you know, I kind of thought when I saw the write-up of this, was it a fundraiser? Maybe it was a one-off thing. But then you pointed me to the speech that he gave last Thursday over in Rockville, and he mentioned it a few times. So let's just listen to a little bit of sound from that speech and talk about it on the other side. There are not many real Republicans anymore. By the way, you're sitting governor. He's a Republican you can deal with. We disagree. No, no, I'm serious. But at least he's within the mainstream of the Republican Party. I respect conservative Republicans. I don't respect these MAGA Republicans. And then he went on to talk a little bit more about how these MAGA Republicans don't believe in democracy. The MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They're a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy. So is this smart to do, Will? Is this the kind of rhetoric that you think will jazz up the crowd in the right way? I don't know if it's smart, Amanda, but I think it's great for our democracy. First of all, so the response to this speech from Republicans was, he's vilifying us, he's demonizing all Republicans. No, 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 that's not true. Listen to what he said, MAGA Republicans. And there's a reason why he puts MAGA in front. And he just illustrated it by pointing to Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, as somebody who's what he calls a real Republican. And I'm sure, Amanda, you and all my colleagues are laughing and really because this is what real Republicans used to mean, real mainstream conservative Reagan Republicans. You know, now real Republicans, as Biden calls them, are called rhinos by this, by the Trumpers who took over the party and don't particularly stand for any principles. Um, but what Biden is doing is this delightful throwback to a time when we used to speak to the middle of the electorate and say, you know, you like suburban Republicans who believe in uh, limited government, who believe in freedom, uh, it, it, we're, we're going to speak to you. You don't have to deny elections, right? You can be honest conservatives. And Biden is, is kind of reaching out to them by saying, you're real Republicans. Larry Hogan is a real Republican. And he, Biden wants to sort of bring those people with him. So Amanda, I think that our politics is seriously dysfunctional because we don't have a real Republican Party anymore. We don't have a party that, as we've been discussing in the context of the loans, a party that really stands for personal responsibility and limited government. And Biden is hearkening back to that day. Yeah, I do wonder how much Larry Hogan appreciates Joe Biden looking at him and saying, no, you're one of the good ones. <laughs> there was, you know, Biden is pretty self-aware about things. There was a, a kind of a funny joke at the top of the speech is where he was talking about how uh, Chris Van Holland was there, who's up for re-election. And uh, he says, well, I told him I'll come campaign for you or against you, whichever one will help the most. And so <laughs> it's like Biden, you know, he, he is aware that he does have some problems here, but I think it is so smart for him to segment the MAGA Republican as extreme part of the party while trying to appeal to the middle, as you pointed out. Unless anyone think that this is this kind of some one-off thing where Biden uh, was speaking off the cuff about the semi-fascist party and MAGA Republicans, it definitely is not. He returned to this idea of the MAGA Republicans 13 times in this scripted speech. I, this is definitely going to be a thing. And he really tied the MAGA Republican idea to Roe, which I also thought was interesting because, again, it allows him to segment 
these, you know, very extreme Republican candidates while appealing to that base that turned out, say, in a place like Kansas. Yeah, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this, I got to say, the bringing abortion into it. I mean, it, it because to me, Amanda, these are two different things. Complaining about Republican extremism on moral issues has been going on a long time. That was traditional Republicans. There were, you know, George W. Bush and the, the, the whole history of the Republican Party, um, well, after the point when it became pro-life, sort of the Reagan Republican Party has always been pro-life. And to bring abortion into it, to me, dilutes the purity of what is really sinister about the MAGA Republican Party, which is its rejection of the rule of law and of democracy um, and the, the, the violence of January 6th and the plotting against elections. And that is the scary stuff to me. We can argue about the rest. We can argue about all of the policy issues, but we have to agree on respecting elections and respecting the rule of law. Oh, I guess I see it a little bit differently because what I saw that Biden is doing that I thought was really effective and smart was saying, yes, these MAGA-type Republicans are extreme on all these issues. I mean, you name it, whether it comes to our elections, whether it comes to, you know, having surveillance and monitoring laws against women. I mean, that is kind of where these MAGA Republicans have landed and the most extreme side of every issue. So, I find it really interesting that you want that preserved for just anti-democratic issues. Yeah, I mean, what do we think about Liz Cheney? I mean, Liz Cheney is pro-life. Liz Cheney is very conservative on abortion. Do we say that she's one of the MAGA Republicans? She's clearly not, right? And the distinguishing thing between her and these Republicans is she respects the Constitution. She respects democracy. Well, I, she's pro-life. I mean, just as I consider myself to be, but I am not in the position of saying that women should be stopped from crossing state lines for fears that a woman may be obtaining an abortion out of state. I'm not for criminalizing doctors for providing life-saving medical procedures. Well, and I doubt Liz Cheney would be either. No, but the the, uh, the crossing state lines thing, look, I, I, all right, I'm supposed to be the left guy, but let's be honest, almost nobody's advocating trying to stop women from, I mean, it's an insane idea. But these MAGA Republicans are, <laughs> that's <laughs> what I'm saying. I most, mean, there's, there's them, stuff that I didn't think existed in the mainstream of the Republican Party, and yet you have these candidates, MAGA Republican candidates, running their campaigns on the most extreme version of almost every issue that comes up. Well, I think if we went around and started going candidate by candidate, we would find plenty of traditional Reagan conservative Republicans who are very pro-life, who are, in my view, extreme on abortion, but who are not MAGA. They're not, you know, they're not uh, denying the election. They're not threatening the rule of law. They're not threatening to interfere in future, future elections. And uh, I can work with those people. I will fight to defeat them on abortion. But to me, they're in a different category. Okay. Well, there's another Republican who's on the Sunday shows who's definitely not a MAGA Republican, and that was Adam Kinzinger. And uh, the Meet the Press host, Chuck Todd, followed up with Kinzinger about what Cheney has been saying about what to do in the midterm elections. Let, let's hear from that. Liz Cheney uh, said that in some cases she may have to help a Democrat win against sort of an anti-democracy Republican. Do you feel that's what you're going to be doing? Uh, uh, over the next couple of years yourself. Yes. And he went on to talk about that a little bit more. And if you have Republicans that are running against even left-wing Democrats that believe in democracy and believe in voting, that person should be elected over somebody who basically would overthrow the will of the people and ultimately destroy this country. This country cannot survive outside of democracy. Sounds about right, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm standing and applauding. Thank you, Adam. I mean, this is a guy, Kinzinger, and I'm sorry there aren't more of them in Congress, 
who simply has his priorities straight, right? We never, when we talk with other people about politics, we don't ever match up perfectly. You and I will agree on a lot of things. We'll disagree on other things. That's just the way it is. You have to ask yourself, which are the things we have to agree on in order to disagree safely and productively about the rest? And he's got his priorities right. Uh, he can he can disagree with Bernie Sanders about everything, but as long as Bernie Sanders agrees with him that we're going to settle our differences democratically, we're going to settle them through the rule of law, then we can argue about the rest. It, Adam Kinzinger is right that if you have a, agree with him on low taxes, but you don't agree with him about democracy and the rule of law, we, the, the, everything's in danger at that point. You can't work out your differences. So uh, way to go, Adam, and I thoroughly agree with him. It is kind of funny how there's different people from different parts of the Republican Party who are upset with what's going on are saying the same thing in different ways. I mean, there you have um, Adam talking about how these anti-democratic candidates need to be opposed. Um, you have other people talking about mega Republicans, you know, Joe Biden trying to attract Republican voters that way. And then you also have people like Mitch McConnell just describing them in terms of poor candidate quality. And that is sort of the tack that Larry Hogan took on the Sunday show. So let's listen to Larry Hogan talk about these poor candidates. And right at the top, he is tearing into the guy, Dan Cox, who has the Republican nomination for governor in Hogan state of Maryland, who Hogan is not supporting. And I've you know, made it very clear that this guy should not be the nominee and he shouldn't be governor, uh, but I'm not getting involved in endorsing in the race. But this is ju- not just Maryland. This is happening across the country. This is something that it's why Mitch McConnell is saying they're not, we're, we may not win the Senate. It's why we were hoping to pick up seats in governor's races and now we're not. It's Curious why we're, the, the, the margin in the House is so much smaller. So what is it? Poor candidate quality, fascism, anti-democratic impulses, all of it, some of it. What is it? Well, I think Hogan's on to something pretty important, and I'm, it's making me hopeful about the midterms and about future elections. Uh, so, Amanda, I don't know if you see it the way I do, but I think a lot of us look at the Republican Party since Trump's defeat, and we're a little bit alarmed that the party hasn't paid a greater price for its craziness, for just cynically repeating lies, or in some cases, believing the lies, and you know, undermining faith in the rule of law and in democracy. I'm starting to think that candidate quality is the mechanism through which the party is going to pay a price at the polls. That is to say, lots of issues will come and go. Inflation will come and go. Crime will come and go. Border stuff will get better or worse. And that can cost Democrats at the polls. But if you are a crazy party and you have a fundamentally dysfunctional primary electorate, you will end up nominating really bad candidates like Herschel Walker, like Carrie Lake, like Doug Mastriano. And hopefully the poor quality of the candidate will cost you at the polls. And Amanda, the key thing is it can't be fixed. It's not like something will get better to make Carrie Lake saner. She is Carrie Lake. She's just going to, she's going to have to be that way. And hopefully that will cost the Republican Party governorships and especially Senate seats. And maybe in the long run, when the Republican Party looks back at the last couple of election cycles, they will say, we lost elections we didn't need to lose because our candidates were crazy, because our primary electorate was fundamentally dysfunctional. Yeah. And the more central problem that nobody, you know, very few people want to confront is that it's Trump. I mean, this is still the overhang of Trump's influence on the Republican Party and the failure to say that we're not going to go in this direction anymore. But you talk about the cost. There actually is a very real 
monetary costs because a lot of these MAGA type Republicans, they're not doing well in terms of fundraising. I mean, the NRSC is pulling tens of million dollars in ads. They're trying to find a way to reallocate funds to the most competitive races. And why is that? Yes, these candidates aren't great at fundraising, but Tim Miller, he's uh, sitting in for Charlie on Morning Shots today, had a great newsletter this morning that talked about how it's actually Trump sucking up so many of these low-dollar fundraising contributions. I mean, you can't have a guy, I think he sucked up $125 million. I mean, that's a lot of money from the pool of funds available for these candidates. And what's he doing with it? He's sitting on it. He's spending it on his legal defense fund or who knows what. But he has it, and he's not giving it to anyone else. And so that also feeds into this poor candidate quality issue, which I really think is just a euphemism for Trump. I think that's a great point. And, you know, okay, I'm I'm of two minds listening to you. One is, oh, this is terrible that this guy has taken over this party and he's like sucking up all this money and he's still around and he's dangerous to the country. But part of me is thinking... This is another mechanism by which the dysfunctionality of the Republican Party can cost it elections, and that is the cure, that is the way to get back to sanity. If the Republican Party eventually realizes that making, turning itself, reducing itself to a cult, right, which is what has happened, has cost it money. The candidates can't raise money, all the money's going to Trump. And I think, as you pointed out, Trump has been raising like gangbusters since the Mar-a-Lago search, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about money for Trump. If you make yourself all about this guy, then the guy gets all the money and then you can't get your candidates funded to win elections. That can be another mechanism by which the party pays a price, which eventually can lead it away from being a cult. Well, even though you were floating on the water last week, I am sure you saw some of the fallout from Affidavit Friday, uh, (laughs) where as far as I can tell, you know, I kept laughing because I was thinking of you when we talked last week. Um, about how Trump and his lawyers were relying on the magic wand classification theory, where he can just wave his magic wand over whatever documents and blink, blink, uh, it's classified. Everything is all good. I mean, they're still really going with this. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's uh, this reminds me, this harkens back to what we were just talking about. You know, Biden calls the Republicans semi-fascist, and they go nuts over this, right? Don't, how dare you call us fascist? Well, Amanda, I mean, you, you look at the, 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 here's the literal definition of fascism. It exalts the nation above the individual. Okay, make America great. There's, there's some of that. Stands for an, a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader. I mean, come on. This idea that the guy can like leave office. First of all, he tried not to leave office, which was the first sign of fascism. He, he summoned a mob to, to, to keep him in power. Second sign of fascism. Um, then like, He's he's taken government documents with him because he still thinks he's kind of the president. And then he then their defense of him is that he can wait, you know, as you say, wave a magic wand. He just deems things to be declassified because he is the great leader. It sounds straight out of North Korea. So yeah, it sounds fascist. Mm, well, what just strikes me is that they're treating this as if it were just any other scandal that came up, but what the affidavit did lay out is that he is facing real crimes. You know, I'm not saying he's going to be charged. You know, we can have a whole debate about whether he should be prosecuted. There's a vibrant one going on throughout the bulwark contributors. Um, but I just want to you know, refresh the memory. He potentially faces Espionage Act charges. There's obstruction. 
There's a law dealing with the criminalization of theft or destruction of government documents. I mean, this time it's really real. And the magic wand classification theory is not going to hold up. He is having a hard time finding good legal representation, although I read story by Maggie Haberman, where it turns out Trump did find a lawyer. His name is Mr. Jim Trusty. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, he, maybe he's perfectly qualified, but I have a little bit of pause because Trump found him after seeing him on television. Uh, but I, I will leave it to uh, Mr. John Carl from ABC News, who put it a little better than I did. Let's listen. We saw the affidavit this week. Uh, I know you've been you've been in touch with the Trump world. They are worried about this. Yeah, look, publicly what they're saying is this is rallying Republicans to Trump's defense. This makes it more likely that he will run for president, more likely that he will win the Republican nomination, campaigning against this political action by the FBI and the DOJ. Privately, they are really concerned. And one of the big concerns here is that Trump has nobody defending him. If you look at his legal team, it is comically inept and inexperienced. All of the big names who defended him through the first two impeachments, uh, through the the Mueller investigation, they are gone. Uh, There is real concern that he needs to bring in a heavy-hitting criminal defense attorney. Well, he's been asking. I mean, I know of several that have been approached who have said no. I even know of one prominent uh, criminal defense attorney who was approached who didn't even return the phone call. Uh, So he and, and, and this raises another question, George: is the idea of Donald Trump running for president again and being the front runner for the Republican? nominations. Will will Republicans be comfortable uh, supporting a candidate who cannot even hire a a criminal defense attorney? Well, there was a lawyer who wouldn't even return the call. I mean, that just, it's hilarious. He's the president, the former president calls you for legal help and you don't even, you just send it to voicemail. What? (laughs) Right. Well, when the attorneys won't take on your case, that's never a good sign for how a judge would look at it, right? But things with Trump, first of all, Trump doesn't pay his lawyers. So, you know, it's a, that's a major problem for hiring your next lawyer. But the next thing is, Donald Trump's case always turns out to be worse than he thinks it, than he pretends it is. And, and this is a case where people, you know, at first the FBI goes in there and, oh my God, what's in there? And they're attacking a former president and there's nothing there. And then we begin to find out things like, we found out the number of documents, right? We found out what there were 184 classified documents that he took with him, you know, without, without any kind of authorization, 67 marked confidential, 92 marked secret, 25 marked top secret, something like 700 pages of illicit material. And so I'm sure a lot of these lawyers are like, what else did you do that we don't know about, right? This is not a case that a lawyer wants to go go into with a client that the lawyer can tell up front he cannot trust. Yeah. Okay. So this is real. He's facing real possibility of criminal charges. He can't find legal representation. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? But Lindsey Graham says if he does get charged with anything, it's going to be bad. Let's listen to what Lindsey Graham said. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. Oh, okay. So that's what they're setting up here. It's it's almost a situation where Trump is designed to lose, but when he does lose, there'll be riots. Right. Now, to be fair to Lindsey Graham, when I heard him say this in that TV interview, I thought, you know, he probably didn't mean to say that. That's just, you know, 
politicians say things all the time. I'm going to like get that guy. And it just came out of his mouth. It was an offhand comment. And I believed that, Amanda, for about three minutes, <laughs> because then three minutes later in the same interview, Lindsey Graham repeated that line, there will be riots in the street, except this time he said, literally, there will literally, just to be clear to anybody like me who didn't take him seriously, he literally meant it. And you and I, Amanda, were just talking about semi-fascism and Republicans saying we're not the fascists, but claiming that you are that your people will go riot in the streets and that that is a reason why the government should not enforce the law against this guy, that is textbook fascism. That is mob rule, a mob controlled by an autocrat defying the rule of law. So if I had to get you down on the bulwark ledger of where you stand, um, whether Trump should be prosecuted, should there be a case you are in favor of prosecution? I no, I'm the squish. I'm going to oh. be the squish on this. I'm the squish in about prosecuting Trump. Okay. I mean, l- let me just back up. I'm an Occam's razor guy. I'm like, what is the minimal explanation for whatever is in front of us? And the minimal explanation is he, the, the, this former president took documents with him that no other president took because he thought he owned the presidency. And the government said, you got to give them back. They're ours. And he resisted. He resisted. He thought he, he they're mine. My love letters with Kim, whatever. And, you know, that's my, it's personal. Whatever. <laughs> I it, got it, a it, special it, box with hearts on it, like a little shoe box for it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's my memorabilia, whatever. I mean, and anyway, the government said, no, 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 we are the government. You are not the government. You have to give them back. He doesn't. And they literally, I think they just went there to get their documents back. And it wasn't just because they were any old documents, but as we've been discussing, they're intelligence documents. They're it's dangerous if these get out. So I don't think they did this to prosecute Trump. I do think they needed to cite laws that he, in fact, had violated in order to get the warrant to go in there. But I think they went in for the documents not to prosecute the guy. What do you think? I'm in favor of prosecution, but I don't think this is the only thing that he will be prosecuted for. And I was you know, heavily influenced by a piece that we had on the bulwark by Paul Rosenwig, where he essentially says that Team Trump is making an investigation miscalculation. And Lindsey Graham was kind of getting at this, where he's saying, if you prosecute him, you know, there'll be riots in the street. Well, what happens if you don't? I mean, it, 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 this all lays on the assumption that there is a firm case to be made. Um, and again, I think there's going to be other developments, not only for Trump, but you know, a, a, a lot of his allies. I don't know if it'll get to Trump, but I, next year, I do think there will be more people facing jail time. Uh, put it that way. And we'll get to that in the when I want to talk about my article that I wrote today. Can I say one more thing about the threat of the mob coming, the sure. riots in the streets? Yeah. There literally were riots in the streets over the killing of George Floyd. And when there were riots in the streets over the death of this black man and the death of other black citizens at the hands of police, Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump and people like them said that they stood for law and order and they were against the violence and that had to be put down and we had to back the blue. But when it's a white person who's threatened, not even killed, just he's not even there. He's at another place. And the FBI, with a judge's approval, goes in, does a nonviolent search, get collects documents. All of a sudden, there's this talk about mobs, you know, and we're supposed to be on the side of the mob. And if I were a black American, I would have my eyes very narrowed as I'm watching these Republicans talk about backing the blue when it's backing the blue against the black person, but not when it's against the president of the United States. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I guess when I think about whether Trump should be prosecuted, I do think about it in terms of how uh, former presidents have been treated, what the standard is, what the precedent is. And this piece by Paul Rosenwig essentially argues that when former presidents have uh, needed clemency in the past, 
you know, take Richard Nixon, for example, when he was pardoned by Ford. There was a deal to be made. It wasn't just that we are going to give you a pardon. You were also getting that pardon in exchange for essentially disappearing from public life, right? Like, I do understand a case for mercy if that person implicitly agrees that they will no longer be an influential political player. But what Trump and his team are kind of setting themselves up for is saying, you can't prosecute me because I am probably going to be a political candidate again. And you hear people saying, oh, he should declare his candidacy. That way he can stop the prosecution, potentially. And I think that is a gross, I agree, that is the wrong approach. Because should he agree to stay in public life and run for president again, that should increase the likelihood of prosecution because he does continue to pose a public threat. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. I think he's an ongoing threat, and I, I don't think he should be prosecuted because of it. But I thoroughly agree with the point that you made that he should not be exempted for the same reason. He should not be exempted because he is a potential political candidate. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not just talking about the classified documents here. Uh, I do think this is far more sprawling, as I mentioned. I wrote a piece for The Bulwark today about how, you know, all these Trump election conspiracy theorists, they went to, you know, all the, they twisted themselves in pretzels, imagining the ways that the election system could be tampered with. We had Italy gay, you had Dominion voting systems. I mean, every conspiracy theory possible. But it turns out, Revealed by new reporting in the Washington Post last week, it was actually the Trump people tampering with the election system. I don't know if you caught this story. It is incredible. Of course, we all know what happened with the cyber ninjas and how they dragged on that fraud it to seize election machines and examine them and blah, blah, blah. What also was happening in 2021 was that Sidney Kraken Lady Powell contracted with this data surveillance force and stuff to go down to Georgia, go to Michigan, and essentially they just asked local clerks to look at the machines, to look at tabulators, to look at the election software, and they went in and copied everything. They literally copied ballots. There's this one phone call from this MAGA activist, Georgia business guy named Scott Hall. He's, he's talking on the phone to his person he thinks is his friend, and the quote is, we scanned every freaking ballot. And, I mean, you want to talk about how easy it is to tamper with the system? All they did was say, knock, knock on the door. Hey, local election clerk, we need to see this. Sure. And in the case of this uh, Coffee County, Georgia, this stuff is just wild. This woman, Misty Hampton, she made this video essentially saying, like, number one, I think she inputted the ballots the wrong way into the machine. So she thought there was some kind of mistake. She makes this viral video showing how, well, see how easy it is to manipulate ballots? And then a few weeks later, Sydney's surveillance team is knocking on the door and copying all the election server stuff. It is just wild. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I want to sort of stand up and do a little pitch for the Amanda Carpenter fan club. <laughs> this is, folks, this is what Amanda Twice in does. in one show. <laughs> this is re really a great public service that Amanda does. You, Mr. and Mrs. America, have like moved on from a lot of this stuff. You have other issues you're concerned about. And this stuff, you know, is reported here and there. Some of it's in Michigan, some of it's in Arizona and Georgia, it's all over, but you're not really keeping track of it. It's not your life, but it's still going on and it's a danger to the Republic. And Amanda, she had, you go to, go to the bulwark, go to the homepage, re 
read, read Amanda's piece. She is totally on this and she is keeping track. She is extremely dogged and she is not going to let them get away with this. And what she captures here, sorry, I'm saying she, I'm speaking to you, Amanda. <laughs> it's not just, it's what you get here in this piece is not just, you didn't just get the part about tampering, you know, looking at the, scanning the ballots. They had access to the equipment itself, to the, like they, you know, we imaged the hard drives, quote unquote, you know, really you image them, you scan them, you, and then we're supposed to use them again. I mean, there are jurisdictions where the election officials won't even use this equipment anymore because they don't know what's been done to it. These people, the Trumpers had uh, in some places unsupervised access to this equipment. And, you know, these are the same people, these MAGA types who, who think the FBI planted documents when they went in <laughs> to get stuff from Marla. But somehow if we who are, com we MAGA people who are completely unvetted, who have no law enforcement credentials, no professional credentials, we go in and get this equipment and look at it and you're not with us and you're supposed to use this again. And as a reminder, all that stuff about dead people voting in the election, the dead people turned out to be Republicans. It was Republicans who committed that kind of fraud. So I don't think, I mean, we have major problems here with the equipment, not because of what happened in the 2020 election, but because after the 2020 election, these, you know, cynics, these lunatics, these crooks went in and got access to it and God knows what they did to it. Yeah. One of the, thank you for all that, by the way. One of the details in the story that just made my jaw drop was that this team of data folks was sent to Coffee County, Georgia. Guess what day they went down? Well, you read the story, so you already know. January 7th. So as the Capitol was being cleared, Washington was reeling from the mob attack on Capitol Hill. Sidney Powell is getting emails from the data guy saying, oh, we're on the way to Coffee County, Georgia. Follow up later. Everything's going great. Nothing slowed them down from doing this. Not even the attack. They, I mean, they didn't even blink. They were still trying to keep this stuff going. And then in Michigan, I, this put a pin on this because this has to do with the midterms coming up in 2022 in November. In Michigan, this guy named Matt DiPerno, I've written about him here and there. He is gotten the Republican nomination to be attorney general. He is running against Dana Nussel, whose office was the one investigating what was happening in Michigan. And so what her office found was that there were a handful of counties where there was this state representative who was making calls saying, you know what, we need the tabulators. Could you give them to us? We are doing something with it. In one case, this person even made a representation that he was a sheriff so these clerks were being asked to hand over equipment to somebody who had something to do with the sheriff's office, and they did. Like, sometimes they were handed off at, you know, like the highway exit. Uh, tabulators were exchanged in the parking lot of a shopping mall, and they took them to hotels and Airbnbs to scan them. And so the guy who's got the Republican nomination to be attorney general was at the center of all this. And there was Reuters that like linked him, you know, he made a report about it. It's not like he was hiding it. They thought they were doing like this amazing, you know, work that was going to save the presidency, blah, blah, blah. But they were literally breaking into the machines and ferrying them off to these sketchy hotels and Airbnbs and sending them back. So yes, you're completely right. All this equipment has to be scrapped. Uh, Dana Nussel is doing the right thing. She's asking for a special prosecutor to take over this because uh, it's kind of weird to investigate your opponent. But 
he has to be investigated. It's just, so we'll see what happens. This is the caliber of people, these poor quality MAGA Republicans that we've been talking about all day. So just keep an eye on that one because that story isn't going away. Again, there's criminal charges possibly being risked for all these people involved in Georgia and Michigan. There's also some travel that they took to Nevada, but it's not clear that they got tabulators or you know copies of the servers there. But I will definitely keep an eye on that. We'll talk about it a lot more. And Will, I hope you have a good fall. It's been a great summer with you. I'm sad that this is our last Summer Monday together, Amanda, but I have really enjoyed our conversations. Thank you so much for them. All right. Thank you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.